Episode 57 at Winning at Work with Paul Pendergast. This episode is sponsored by Join Us Search. They are a national retained executive search firm specializing in only food and beverage. And they specialize specifically within sales, marketing, innovation, and operations. So Paul comes out of Coca-Cola, 21-year career there. He was vice president sales for a national retail, then regional vice president of retail sales, gets out of Coke to go to a, a smaller but fast-growing business segment, which is plant-based foods, becomes president of Arevia, which is then acquired by Upfield. And Upfield is the largest plant-based food organization. They're privately held $3 billion. Paul gives us a lot of information about the trends that are happening in the niche. And if if you're looking to expand and you want to find a new market and you want to put your advertising dollars, you're going to be very surprised at what the data says is the best state to expand into. Secondly, has great insight into how to manage expectations of a sales team up to the executives and how to help a struggling salesperson. Very, very practical. We've all dealt with struggling salespeople. And the theme, as you know, of winning at work is we discuss superpowers. What is it that you're doing that you do really well that enables you to win at work? His is persistence. And it does sound a little simplistic, as he says, might sound a little trite, but he breaks it down in a, in a way that you've probably hadn't thought of as he breaks it into leadership, career development, sales, and personal development. So please have your pen ready. He's got so much great information here for us. Enjoy the episode. And if you're enjoying the content overall, please like it, subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. And as you know, I publish a lot of these on LinkedIn. So if you're liking the content, share it out to your network because I'm probably not connected with your network and that'll help expand the reach of these executives and what they're doing. And it's just there to benefit the professionals that are here on LinkedIn. So enjoy today's episode with Paul Pendergast. Paul Pendergast, welcome to the program today. How are you? Nice to be here. I know we've got a lot to talk about today as we talk about sales and always being ready for that, you know, one big chance to land that client. That's kind of a mantra you've, you've lived by Paul, but for people who don't understand, you know, your background and kind of where you're coming from, having spent, you know, let's say 20 years at Coca-Cola or kind of rising up through the ranks in the sales organization to then switch over into plant-based food. How did that even happen? <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that, that situation? It's very interesting how it happened, and it started with a career assessment at Coca-Cola from several years ago. I had reached a point where I was considering my future, how much longer I wanted to work. Uh, I'm in towards the end of my career, if you will, um, and I wanted to see if I was a, happy doing what I'm doing for another 10 years, and B, press myself towards achievement of long-held career goals 
and then connecting the two to see if they were still in the place I wanted them to be. So essentially, I was at Coca-Cola, enjoying what I'm doing, great company, loved working there. But I wanted to see if the next 10 years were going to challenge me the way I wanted to be challenged and allow me to hit the, the career objectives I had. And I decided that maybe there was room to explore other opportunities. And I was exposed to plant-based food manufacturers and friends in the industry that led me to believe that um, maybe I should look at some other opportunities. Yeah. So how did you find Arevia? Because they were obviously acquired by Upfield and for people who aren't familiar with Arevia, that's a plant-based food focused, you know, like allergen-free, soy-free, gluten-free um, cheese products. Absolutely. And it's a fairly typical story of being found. Uh, I didn't find them. They found me through uh, traditional kind of corporate recruiters and through friends that connected me to those recruiters. And after several months of, of dialogue around their expectations and what they were looking for, and my expectations and, and what I wanted to do next in life after Coke, as a lot of folks will joke that have been at the company, uh, I realized that this was a great opportunity. The, the world of food is changing, and I had been in the food and beverage business for, for many, many years, not just with Coca-Cola. And I, I was intrigued by how the food world has to adapt to growing trends from animal welfare, from environmental sustainability standpoint, carbon footprint, and traditional farming methods. Those things are not going to continue in the traditional way that we've experienced them in the last hundred years. Population growth and demands on global resources are going to mean that plant-based food development has to continue to be a larger portion of consumables than it is now uh, just so we can sustain growing global population. And I thought that was a really neat place to be. I have friends in the, in the business that encourage me to look uh, at, at plant-based meats, plant-based foods, plant-based milks uh, as great career opportunities to go out and do something that um, is a little bit different and, and could allow me to reach some larger career goals that uh, probably would be unmet if I stayed at Coca-Cola. Well, just due to the sheer volume of people, it's going to be difficult to get to the upper, upper echelon. And when you were hired at Arriva, did you start as the president? I was hired to establish their U.S. sales and marketing organization. And those were the plans that I was executing in my first year there prior to the acquisition uh, by Upfield. For those who don't know, I think in 2020, we were looking at maybe $16 billion or so in sales for plant-based foods. And depending on which analyst you talk to, it looks anywhere from, well, plus or minus $40 billion in 2025. So enormous growth. You are definitely riding the wave. You're, you're on the curve, if you will, I think heading in the right direction. Tell us a little bit about Upfield, what you're doing there, what the company's focused on. I know it's one of the largest, if not the largest, 
uh, plant-based food organizations in the world. And then let's transition into your superpower, which we're all waiting to hear uh, <laughs> the sales uh, strategies of a very successful salesperson. So give us, um, give us a little background on, on Upfield and kind of what you're currently doing. Definitely. Upfield is a global company with um, $3 billion in sales. It's privately held. And we are the leader in plant-based foods uh, and total sales. And the Violife cheese brand was acquired to help them continue that global growth and global leadership in, in plant-based foods. My, my new role with Upfield is in the business-to-business -business or industrial food manufacturing segment. It's a newly created organization, and our goal is to sell cheese products or Violife products in addition to our other plant-based creams and butters uh, as ingredients to food manufacturing, frozen pizzas, frozen burritos, lots of different things, primarily in, found in the retail channels, but also uh, as uh, prepared meals in, in food service. And it's been really, really exciting place to be. Our growth in Violate, if, if you look at some of the tracking data that's public that's out there, you know, we're growing tremendously, uh, double category growth, which in 2020 for plant-based cheese was 42%. So we're, we're a leader in growth. We're a leader in innovation and product development. And our cheeses, plant-based cheeses, have the, the best functionality, taste, texture, aroma that you can find out there in our opinion. Well, what's amazing too is that as you look at uh, either B2C or B2B sales, I would think the the business to business side is where I would want to be rather than kind of fighting it out, duking it out as a as a brand trying to get consumer awareness. I I personally like the strategy the company's taken focusing on selling to to food manufacturers and distributors. It's a big opportunity and it really came to light unfortunately in the global pandemic with COVID-19 because people were at home and their cooking options and exposure to plant-based foods are probably limited. They start shopping at retail looking for animal-free either meal replacements or ingredients to be used in home cooking. And we started getting requests from meal replacement and frozen food manufacturers to, to start testing our cheeses for use in frozen prepared meals. And the, the results have been just, just tremendous. And uh, I've got so many projects going on right now, it's almost hard to, to keep tabs of it. Well, that's really exciting. So we'll have to make a note uh, in a year. We're going to follow up and just see, <laughs> have you covered the world in cheese yet? Um, We're trying. You're definitely doing your part to do that. Well, before we jump in completely into the sales side, which is really why we're here today, I know you've touched on some trends right now in your niche, but but I'm sure you've you've been thinking about this topic. What are we not seeing? What are some of the other trends that are that people in the food and beverage space need to be paying attention to? There, there's a lot of different viewpoints out there, but the continued move to, to plant-based foods, not only in meat and cheese and long-established dairy products, but in spreads, in desserts, in dressings, those are all 
targets for plant-based food manufacturers. And as the restaurant business comes back to life, as it's starting to do, those retail consumers are now looking for menu entrees that have the same animal-free traits. And I talk to people about this frequently. Because of, of our products, Biolife will focus on, but also some of our, our plant butters and creams, they're designed to be one-to-one replacements for dairy. So if you're a restaurant operator, you can take your number one pasta dish and let's say it's spaghetti with meatballs, or that's a bad one. Let's say it's a lasagna with meat sauce. You can find a plant-based meat. You can find gluten-free vegan noodles. You can find plant-based cheese. You can create your best-selling item totally plant-based. And now you have avoided what we call the veto-making power of consumers when they go to eat. It, and, and I'll explain that if if you want me to. In the yeah, go there. into that because I, I have some friends who – will veto, you know, a restaurant if they don't see something. So I, I think I know where you're going with that, but go ahead and fill that in. Absolutely. So it's it's very, very common that in a group of five or six people, you'll have one or two people that are vegan or vegetarian or lactose intolerant or gluten allergens, have gluten allergens. And, and as you walk through the lunchtime menu list of restaurants, the veto power comes into play when that person says, I, I don't want to go there because they don't have anything I can eat, right? So when you get into products that are gluten-free, soy flea, vegan, non-GMO, et cetera, you now allow restaurant operators to put entrees on their menu that satisfy everybody and you are no longer vetoed from the decision-making process about where the team goes to eat lunch or eat dinner. Yeah. You've got four or five people who are just dying to go to this one place. And then Karen says, no, (laughs) and then everyone has to scramble back to their phones and find another option. That's a great way to avoid the power of the veto with the data that you're seeing. Can you tell what parts of the country have adopted plant-based food more than others? It's it's very interesting. I was just looking at some data from Plant-Based, Plant-Based Food Association. And if you get into micro detail about cities, then you find large discrepancies. But my recollection of the map I was looking at was all about equal in the four quadrants they had broken the United States into. There weren't, it wasn't 80% in this quadrant and 20% in the other quadrant out of 100% of total sales consumption. It was fairly evenly spread around anywhere between 20 and 25%. And that struck me a little bit because there would be a, a logical line of thought that says, progressive food states like California, New York, etc., would have heavier consumption levels, but not to the degree you might have anticipated. And that's what I was thinking. I'm really glad you said that because there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are starting 
you know, food brands and they're trying to get into new other cities and states and they're trying to figure out where to go. So I'll give you a, a great example. In my previous role prior to the acquisition, I was working with our marketing team in Greece on defined media investment in the major cities around the, the United States where we could maximize purchasing power and also reach the target audience. And Dallas came up as one of the cities we should focus on. And there was a lot of surprise internally because Texas doesn't necessarily, excluding Austin, seem like a place that would be a plant-based meat target, right? Totally counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. And the, the data was that the consumers in Dallas were very, very receptive and had uh, acquired these tastes for plant-based meats and cheeses. So that's a, a, a demo that we were going to spend, uh, invest in from a marketing standpoint. Yeah, I, I think you've said it. I think, you know, 20, 25% evenly distributed across these four quadrants. It makes sense. We've had a lot of a lot of influx of, of people and ideas all mingling th throughout the country. And I think, unfortunately, too, we've seen a rise in allergies with kids. And that's really forced parents to start looking for other options. I don't know that's the, the number one, uh, certainly not the number one driver, but I do think that kind of started or supported that trend. It, it supports the trend and it, it buckets the plant-based consumer into a target that you can market to. And then when you add the flexitarians, which are people that are actively reducing meat consumption or animal protein consumption for various reasons, because there are many, it, it gives you a segment of business that you can successfully pursue and, and make money on. Now, did you just make up a word there or is that a thing? No, it's a word that I learned when I, I started at Arabia two years ago. Flexitarian? And flexitarian. It describes a flexible diet and people that move in and out of animal protein consumption, sometimes for health reasons, to reduce cholesterol, etc. Sometimes for animal welfare reasons. Uh, sometimes for their, their avoidance reasons, right? Lactose, gluten, uh, etc. And, and sometimes it's a desire to completely eventually eliminate uh, meat consumption and, and become vegan or vegetarian. And so that phraseology is, is called flexitarian. <laughs> you see, folks, you learn something every day. So let's get over to life in sales. And I'm fascinated with very successful people in sales, how they've done it. I, there's all kinds of different theories and philosophies and personalities that people say work and, and don't work. So why don't you kind of walk us through some of your philosophies? You've managed large teams um, throughout your career. So I'd like to just kind of turn it over to you. <laughs> Tell us how to be better in sales. Sure, sure. Um, are we still talking about superpowers? It, I think it's I think it's all tied together. So, do you have another superpower you wanted to talk about? Well, in in general, the key to my success has been the superpower of persistence, and 
that may sound extremely simplistic to people, but it manifests itself into various formats that are uh, much more complicated. Persistence in sales means the obvious pursuit of, of a customer account or an objective, but persistence in leadership means how you regularly coach and lead a team. Persistence in career development means how you identify the path to success to achieve a career goal through mentorships, through personal training, through personal development. So it's, it's not as simple as I'm going to continually go after this piece of business every day or this job every day because you have to build relationships and be persistent in that. You have to understand the company objectives and how you work your goals into delivering on those objectives and be being persistent there. It requires persistent development and personal growth in learning trades and, and learning capabilities outside of the scope of your role. It, 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 well, I don't know how to really don't know a better way to say it. I think, I think you just said it better because for you to be successful as a sales leader, you need your sales team to be um, constantly developing and growing. Absolutely. It's, it, it, it starts with hiring the right people. Then it goes to establishing clear and consistent expectations. And from there, you need to support them with the development tools, the sales tools, the products, the packages, so that, that they can be successful. And, and then it's motivating them to deliver on those expectations. And those are consistent, persistent requirements to success because sales can take anywhere from a couple of days. It's very transactional to getting a display or an end cap with a retailer or the world that I'm in right now that takes 18 months, 24 months from initial conversation to product development, to R and D to price negotiation, to consumer testing, to launch in the trade. How would you help a struggling salesperson? So we talk about developing and helping, and we always assume that, you know, they're going to get better, but do you have some things that you do when you spot a struggling salesperson? Definitely. And there are several reasons why people struggle. Some of them are fit. Is this person doing what he or she wants to do? Okay. Yes or no. Yes. Is this person, is he or she trained? And do they have an understanding of what it takes to be successful in this role? Yes or no? No. Give them the training and the support that they need to be successful. Yes. Then do they understand the selling cycle, the, 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 the context of what they have to go through to engage the customer, listen to the customer needs, acknowledge customer needs, come up with solutions, and then present those needs? If you go through all those steps and the person is still struggling, then you really need to go back to step one and say, do I have the right person in this role? And can I help them move into a role that they are suited for that he or she can be successful in? And that's really the tough end of that job 
Uh, I've been at companies not to be named where there's a hesitancy to go through the process and then circle back and say, this person's not the right in the right place and their skills aren't suited for success in this role. We need to help them move out either internally or externally into roles that they can enjoy and be successful with. That's the kind of organization you want to work for. You, you really need truth. It's, um, it can be, if it's in the culture, if it's part of the culture that you're training and developing, assessing, and then coming back to the very first question, are they the right person or is this what they really want to do? If that's not there, you're really avoiding tough or uncomfortable conversations. You're letting someone linger and drag. It's, it's a poison, really, if you, don't, if you don't address it and don't move it out. People are understandably hesitant to have conflict, right? Nobody, it's not fun to move people out of an organization. No, it's not enjoyable. And I'll, I'll share two things that I have told people that have worked on my teams over the years. And some of it is coaching I got from other people and some of it are my own observations. And the first one is if you're not experiencing success in your role, then you have options. And I live by these options myself, by the way. Uh, number one, you can take the position that you're in and accept it and, and find happiness in it. Number two is you can take steps to be successful and improve your percent, your, your position. Uh, so you can move on and do better things. Number three, you start looking externally outside the organization to find something that's, that's a better fit. The one thing you cannot do though, and, and should never be tolerated is let unhappiness or underperformance impact the team and your success as a team that cannot absolutely cannot be tolerated. And the other thing that I have told people in pursuit of my own career goals, if I apply for a job and I don't get the job or I'm networking to try to find my next opportunity, tell me the truth. If I don't have the skills you're looking for and you don't think I can acquire them to be the leader you need me to be, let me know. Don't tell me that what I'm doing is taking me down the right path if, if it's not true. I'm, I'm a grown adult. I can handle feedback and I will decide what to do if the feedback isn't congruent to my own personal thinking. You mentioned your superpower was persistent or, or persistence. How has that shown up though, I guess, as a, as an external salesperson? It, it happens every day at, at it happens in my current role. It's happened over the years. And, and I, I give you a couple of examples if, if you're interested. And one of them was, I think kind of the, the major awakening for me on the diligence and persistence it takes to be successful as an individual salesperson. And it it's 20, 25 years ago, but the learnings are still applied today. There was a major uh, regional convenience store chain uh, in the West that had been with an exclusive competitor in the juice business during my time at Tropicana. And the vice, the president of our division at the time came to me and said, 
your number one priority is to get us back into this chain. And uh, I said, okay, sure. What are the parameters? How much can I spend? What's the capital requirements you're going to give me? The gross profit margin. Tell me what the parameters are, and I'll go after this piece of business. And it was about an 18-month process, and it started out with an initial conversation at their office with the category manager about Tropicana products versus their exclusive deal with a competitor. And um, we had a nice conversation, and at the end of the conversation, uh, the buyer said to me, we have an exclusive deal. Thanks for your time, and um, we'll talk to you down the road. I developed a a strategy of communication and, and tactics to where I created reasons to engage the buyer about every 30 days, industry information, product innovations, trade shows, competitive observations. And I would find reasons to either be in the market and meet with them in person or email information. And at the end of those meetings, phone calls, face-to-faces, emails, he would always say the same thing. You know, we have an exclusive deal with your competitor. And I would say, yes, I know. And that went on for about 18 months. And and I'm, I'm writing a book, and this is one of the examples that's in my book about selling. And I use this. The last conversation I had with him I, I, I was leaving his office and I was expecting the same thing. You know, we have an exclusive deal with your, your competitor. <laughs> but as I, as I got up and shook his hand and started walking out the door, he said, um, you know, our deal is coming due with our competitor and I would like you to come back with a proposal in the next 60 days. And I, I had to contain my excitement as I, walked out of his office and left the building. And and within 60 days, I had put together a proposal where we kicked out our competitor and we had become the exclusive juice business in this regional regional uh, convenience store chain, had about 500 stores. And that model I have used successfully ever since. I have goosebumps. <laughs> I mean, that is awesome. The question is then how do salespeople apply this essentially – content, you know, topical, practical content marketing to their prospects and customers? The, the first thing you have to do is create some type of relationship. Ad hoc, blind engagement via email, phone calls, etc. is usually rejected. We all get junk mail, junk emails, junk phone calls solicitations from people we have never met. And what do we do? Think about LinkedIn. How many LinkedIn requests do you get from people you've never met? Tons. Yep. And and how many do you decline? Ironically, I just got a lead from LinkedIn, but that's for another another day. <laughs> well, you know, there's always an exception. Uh, there's always the exception. But establish the relationship somehow, whether it's through mutual sales contacts, industry contacts, it it doesn't matter. Once you establish some type of relationship and you have a credibility, 
then you can start probing for opportunities to share information and move the conversation in the direction that you want it to go. It's not easy and it's time consuming and it, it's got to be sincere and not a blatant grab for volume that doesn't lead to future partnerships. Yeah. They'll see right through it. They'll see right through it. Yeah. Yeah, they will. I think in the way you talk, you tell your story where you, it sounds like in a lot of ways you were doing great work. The fact that you could still have face-to-face meetings with this category manager, that to me sounds remarkable that they would still find time to meet with you, but that you shook a stand and turned to leave and didn't ask for his business. And I thought that was a little counterintuitive because many people would, you know, they're always told, you know, don't forget to ask, but I think you were showing a different, I don't know. You, you, you were sent that situation a little bit differently than maybe most people would. Well, I asked the very first time I was in, in his office face to face. I made the goal clear. We would like to be your juice and juice beverage provider. I never had to say it again after that. My intentions were clear, but they weren't singularly focused because I positioned Tropicana as a part of a category that that could grow in totality, not just Tropicana, you need to sell my products because it's good for you. And everything I shared was about category growth and the benefits of a portfolio that was larger than what was being carried and innovations that were outside of my brand, but might benefit him with other companies that were not conflicting competitively. So the innovations that you were sharing, were they directly from Tropicana or were they innovations just in the industry and you were just kind of bringing it to his attention? Do you, do you recall? Both. both. Okay. Tomato, tomato juice products, highly fortified with vitamins. Those weren't in our portfolio, but they were providing growth to the category and it was unavoidable to discuss them with him in the bigger picture of what should be in the, the shelves and bottled beverages in his stores. I imagine people, salespeople who are listening to this are just thinking, how could they possibly get back in front of the customer a second, third, fourth, fifth time when the category manager had already told you they weren't going to need you for, well, you didn't really know how long. So I, I think you have some other special gift there. I know you talked about making a relationship. You obviously are very good at that. And I think your style, just even talking to you now, you don't come across, you come across more informative much less that of a salesy type of person. So I think that must be to your advantage. So back, back in the day at Fort Howard paper, when I first got into food and beverage sales, uh, I remember joking with the buyer at craft food service that I was not a salesperson. I was a purveyor of information. And he thought that was one of the funniest things he had ever heard. And it's partially (laughs) true because an information purveyor doesn't necessarily ask for the sale. He or she walks in and says, here's the latest news and then leaves. And it's part of being successful in developing relationships and rapport 
and I'm going to give you a sneaky little trick about what I used to do. I I would um, I would make up. I don't want to say lie, but I would make up reasons to be in town, so I could casually come by for a visit. If 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 I called and said I want to come out and see you, he would say no because he felt an obligation that he couldn't fulfill because he was under an exclusive contract. If I am in town for other business and I want to see him, he's not obligated. There's no loss and there's no expectation of some type of transaction. And then he would let me come in and see him. I've done that many, many, many times with other customers over the years. I have another example around preparedness and, and developing relationships and, and being ready to take advantage of an opportunity that's presented to you. Uh, if I think it, well, it's something that happened just recently in my current role, and it's happened many times over the years. I have spent a year or so with a food manufacturer here in the U.S. that is, is with a competitor, uh, sending samples talking to them about the qualities of our cheese versus competitive plant-based cheese and uh, pricing in the hopes that at some point we could get them to switch. And to this point, we've been unsuccessful. But I was presented with an opportunity recently that was driven by my ability to inform the customer of our products and an unfortunate incident where there were some supply chain issues with our competitor. And, and more often than not, as a salesperson or as a sales lead, one of your team members will get new business because of customer unhappiness with a vendor, a price increase, a supply chain issue. And if you've done the diligence and if you've persistently engaged this customer, when that opportunity comes, you're ready to strike. And I was able to replace a competitive cheese, uh, plant-based cheese with our cheese for all of the above reasons. It is amazing to me over the years how much business myself or my teams have acquired because of unhappiness that customers experience with a vendor. And let's be very clear, it goes both ways. If you as a upfielder or a Coca-Cola person force a, con, uh, a customer into that similar type of unhappiness, you will lose the business as well. So does the prospect slip up or do they just kind of in a moment of just being really candid, do they just say they're unhappy? How does that information filter up? Oftentimes it's as simple as picking up the phone and the other end there is a buyer that says, Paul, your competitor totally screwed up and you help me out. You, you would be amazed at how blunt they are and how often that happens. And if you've given them the information, you've, if you've been that purveyor and you've built that relationship of no expectations, I'm here if you need it, it can work out great if you're able to fulfill that one-time need, and eventually it manifests itself into better things. And I, it sounds like you also work in organizations where they have uh, a fair amount of patience for results. Now, I always say, particularly with 
with my team, the only thing you really can control is your own activity. So as long as you're doing, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you know, managing your activity, the results will come. And that sounds like you are living by that as well. Yes, uh, I do live by that, but I'm not so sure that some of the organizations I've worked for have always been that patient with me or my teams. There's always pressure to deliver the numbers and managing that pressure with accurate forecasting and honest assessment of performance and your ability to deliver the plan is really, really important. And when you communicate the sight line of customer development, product development, product launches, innovation, and how it impacts your performance correctly, most leadership teams, whether it's good or bad, will understand where you're coming from and appreciate the action plans you, you have in place. Not everybody, but most of them do. And it's really, really important to be honest in, in forecasting performance objectives. I've worked at companies that have had a culture that doesn't allow for accuracy and forecasting because it is heresy to say you're not going to make your business plan. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in meetings in September where the forecast is so far off. It's clear to everyone in the room you're not going to make it, but people are still yet not going to say they're going to miss their business plan. And that's ridiculous. Companies have financial obligations, and they need, good or bad, they need to know where you're going to be and what you're doing about it, as opposed to Pollyanna of, I'm going to make my plan. Don't worry about it. It's December, and I'm still 300,000 cases off. But, you know, and then everybody on December 31st is scratching their heads why, why they didn't deliver the plans. It's not healthy. Now, you've also, uh, we talked a little bit offline about um, kind of life in sales, but also internally. And it sounds like in, in some ways what you were just doing was kind of managing your your upline, right? You were communicating, you were kind of managing, you know, expectations. I'm sure that's a part of this um, kind of internal sales. But I think you had some other ideas around, you know, life and sales as it relates to, you know, inside the organization with your other colleagues and, you know, personal development, et cetera. Yes. We talked about being responsible for your own personal development and companies are fantastic. Every company I've ever worked for has had great tools available for personal development, career planning, objective setting. But it stops there. Uh, there are very few of us that are one of the chosen few. We all know people like that. They seem to have meteoric rises in organizations and we kind of scratch our heads and we're not sure why. The rest of us, the other 95% of us, work really, really hard on personal development, on mentorships, on capability building, skill building, role sorts, job sorts, different opportunities and experiences that will position us for a director, a, a vice president, a pres presidential role. And persistence in that pursuit is really important in identifying people within the organization that are supportive of 
sponsoring you for different positions, uh, identifying leadership opportunities that might suit your skills, and being willing to take risks within the organization. I, I have been the benefactor of promotions that, for lack of a better term, maybe no one else wanted or was willing to, to take. It required moves to cities that weren't maybe the, the optimal cities or they weren't in headquarters. But I took those roles because they allowed me to build personal skills. They also allowed me to achieve career objectives and they gave me visibility within the organization. Um, one of the, one of the positions was a director of marketing role in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I interviewed, I interviewed very well and I was also there and a lot of people didn't want to move to Richmond and I got the job. Uh, there was another role on, and on the bottling side at Coca-Cola that, um, I was well suited for, and it was a risky position given some of the eventual decisions the company made about company owned bottlers, but it was a great couple of years in that role while it lasted. And it was a tremendous experience for me. You have to take risks and be willing to do things that maybe other folks aren't comfortable doing, and it will lead you to bigger and better things. And I, I'd never regret those, those making those decisions. Yeah, that's good advice. And I think it's easier said than done. And you better be courageous and confident. And if you've got a good mentor and you're getting some coaching and advice along the way, then that could help maybe overcome that fear of taking this job. So you're not making that decision in a vacuum. And don't be afraid to ask people, ask senior leaders, but I have found, and this has been pretty amazing that senior leaders in any organization I've ever worked in, they're more than happy to sit down and talk to you and, and help you think about your career. They love doing that and some more than others, but don't be afraid to reach out to people one or two levels up, establish some type of relationship and ask them for thoughts around career development. I do it all the time. People reach out to me and, and I'm glad to do it. And you're doing it now for even a larger base. <laughs> exactly. And we definitely appreciate that, uh, Paul. Let's um, let's transition to our last topic, and it's one that I have experience in, as do you, and that's talent. And you've got a lot of hiring wisdom over the over your career with all the different decisions you've made. You've hired what fifty off to a hundred people, probably. I've been involved in directly and directly hiring decisions on at least a hundred people. Now I didn't hire a hundred people per se. My, my direct hires probably 25, but I've sat in interview pools on another 75. And then I have my own personal experiences as, as a candidate. So easily a hundred hiring decisions. Yeah. And you definitely begin to, find a, a trend or you kind of create a philosophy when hiring. And since we're talking about sales and we are salespeople, why don't uh, you give us some of your wisdom when it comes to say hiring salespeople? Absolutely. Uh, when I'm interviewing candidates, I have several things that I look for or that come across that are noticeable and not necessarily in order. The first thing that I would say is 
be honest. Take credit for the things that you can take credit for. Don't stretch the truth. We all know. We can tell because we ask questions. We ask follow-up questions. And that's where you potentially get exposed. So, so be real about the things that are on your, your resume. The second thing is confidence. Be confident in what you're telling us. Make us feel like you were committed to the activities and that you performed with excellence and you're confident you can do that in my organization if I hire you. The third thing would be good communication skills. Maintain eye contact, speak clearly, have your thoughts come out as organized, not random. And, and don't misunderstand this for language barriers because we're a country of, of immigrants and I've interviewed, you know, Asian, Hispanic, um, take your pick, candidates. And language barriers can be overcome. And I never would want to miss out on a great candidate because I had perceived a language barrier as a capability issue. I'm talking about formal structural communication skills, body language, nonverbal, etc. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, organizing your thoughts, very important. Uh, I've got a couple more if, if we have time. Yeah, um, we do. Go for it. So be intelligent about your facts and your success and, and your background. Uh, this kind of goes back to your honesty. And, and then the last couple are somewhat personality traits. But um, <laughs> when you're asked a question, answer it and stop talking. Wait for the follow-up questions. I've interrupted people and said, thank you. We can move on. Be succinct. Get your point across and then stop and then look me in the eye and wait for me to answer my next question. I've had people talk themselves out of jobs because they give too much information. And then the last one, the last one is be sincere and be yourself. We know there is a persona that you put on when you come into an interview, high energy, excited, engaging, but you can't fake that. I'm a very low key kind of, mellow guy, but I'm, I'm very passionate about what I do and being successful. That doesn't always come across. And, and people have over the years often come to me after an interview and, and I've been working them for a while and said, you know what? I didn't, I knew you were good, but I didn't realize what I got with you because in the interview, it doesn't come across as, as high energy and, and some of the things that maybe we were looking for. Um, and you can try to be someone else, but eventually it wears off and you go back into your, your typical personality. So be yourself, be confident, be sincere, tell the truth, and um, you'll have a good interview. Do you need to address the fact that, let's say you are low-key, do you need to address that at some point in the interview, kind of put the cards on the table, but still make your point? I have done that many times in an interview. 
I have said to employers as part of my close or, or maybe internal opportunities I was pursuing that my personality is, is casual, kind of laid back, but don't ever mistake that for lack of passion and lack of desire because you will be extremely surprised when you see how I am in the work environment and achieving my goals and my desire to win. I hope everyone wrote that down because that's good. Perhaps you're hiring. Are, are you looking for anybody now that this might be a good opportunity for people to try to connect with you? Up, Upfield has opportunities and I don't personally have any on my team. Currently it's a very small team and, and we are, reliant on a broker representation at this point, but the larger organization is always looking for talented sales and marketing people. And I can certainly direct interested parties to the right uh, department. If they see a job posting on upfield or just want to reach out and network and get an understanding of, of where our business is taking us. We are, headquartered in, in Hackensack, New Jersey, but we work remotely as a lot of people do right now and have folks all over the country. So uh, I, I don't have specific roles in mind, but we, we do have openings uh, constantly and I'd be happy to talk to folks that are interested. No, that's great because plant-based food is definitely hot. So if you're in food and beverage and you, you know, want to get on that, get on that train, this might be a good place to look. Paul, thank you so much. It's been extremely informative. Lots of great little values and little gems you were dropping. It's almost like a sales masterclass from Paul. <laughs> Paul Pendergast, thank you so much for being here today, sir. You're welcome. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for having me.